All right, part three of the Upside Down Kingdom. Um, If you're new uh, to Grace Point or if you haven't been around for a while, we are taking about six weeks to look at the most amazing sermon ever. Not my sermon, uh, certainly not Pastor Frank's sermon from last week, but the Sermon on the Mount. And in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to put yourself on the side of a hill um, northern Israel, just off the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, listening to the words of Jesus, maybe uh, for the very first time. But before we get to that, I actually want to take you to the side of a hill in northern Italy in 2014, where this happened. Just outside um, a small mountain village, a landslide sent several house-sized boulders down a hill that actually took out portions of the house. I mean, look at the wake of destruction behind this thing. And then here's another angle of it. It just, it just obliterated the barn. And you can kind of see up there in, in the top um, corner next to the house where another boulder stopped. Take a look at it from another angle. That thing stopped right before it hit the house. And um, according to the story, the family was actually at home <laughs> when this was happening. So imagining, just imagine yourself looking out that window, seeing this gigantic boulder come towards your house, and it stops right there. And then one more picture. Um, You can see the track coming all the way down uh, the mountain, but do you notice anything else? See the boulder there in the foreground? It's, It's mowed around, it's planted around, no wake behind it, there's there's a path around it. Where'd that thing come from? That boulder rolled down the mountain years ago. So, With that in mind, if you have a Bible or a mobile device, find Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start with verse 21. I want you to listen to these words like you're there, sitting on the hillside. And I want to see if you can figure out what the boulders in northern Italy have to do with the words of Jesus in northern Israel. All right? Here we go. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So these are the words of Jesus. Uh, Some of them make sense. Some of them don't. They get um, more unsettling the more you realize what he's actually saying here. But today, I want us to talk about, I want us to explore the epidemic of anger in our world. 
I want us to, to think about um, the boulders that we send rolling towards our families, um, our marriage, our kids, um, our coworkers, our, our, our community on social media, our community where we live, everywhere we turn. It feels like the volume of anger is so loud. And, and, and I just want us to think about how, how can we, as followers of Jesus, turn the volume down when it comes to anger in this world? And I know this is where some of you go, okay, I'm not an angry person, so I'll, I'll log off, move about my day. Those really, really angry people need to stay and watch this message. But don't assume Don't assume this isn't for you. Don't assume that Jesus doesn't have anything to say to you in this today. All right? Here we go. Uh, Jesus makes a connection between murder and anger. You've, You've heard it said, you shall not murder or you'll be subject to judgment. And we know he's talking about the Big Ten. He's talking about one of the Ten Commandments. And and if you guys were here in the room with me, I'd ask for a quick show of hands, how many of you believe murder is wrong? And my guess is, pretty much everybody would raise their hand. And if you didn't, the people around you would have some questions about why you didn't raise your hand. We know murder is wrong. It violates God's law. It violates God's way. I can make the case from Genesis chapter 9 that it violates the image of God in your fellow human beings. And, and we can talk about the ethics of warfare. In fact, we have before. Uh, we can talk about death penalty. But w- when you look at the word Jesus is using here, he's talking about a deliberate, premeditated manslaughter. And, and we all agree that's wrong. Pretty much every culture in human history agrees that that's wrong. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He takes it a step further. He says, I, I, I don't think you understand how close anger is to murder. If you're angry with your brother or sister, you're inviting judgment. See, for Jesus, and this, this happens all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. For Jesus, it's not just about the externals, the stuff on the outside, the, the behaviors, the actions. For Jesus, it's also about the stuff on the inside, too. He's pointing to the stuff that that poisons us from within. And he gives a couple examples that seem kind of weird to us, so let's just just talk about those. He says, sometimes um, your anger is going to lead you to to saying to someone, Racha. And you say, well, I've never done that, so I'm good, Tim. Uh, But but Racha is an Aramaic word that means empty-headed. And it's a, a derogatory term that robbed people of their dignity of their worth, of their identity. It was, it was one human being forgetting that another human being was made in the image of God. It's the same uh, with the phrase, you fool. The Greek word for fool here is moros. It's where we get our word moron. And Jesus is just giving an example, a couple examples. When you allow the things inside of you to boil to the point where you speak against the image of God in another person, you're dangerously close to the sin of murder because you're speaking against a fellow image bearer. And, and is Jesus saying that, that murder and anger are the same thing? No. 
Is he, is he putting them on the same level? Is he saying that they're equally destructive? No. But like every good rabbi, Jesus is making his audience appropriately uncomfortable. Right? He's, he's saying there's something about anger that we miss, that, that we're forgetting how much this matters to our Father in heaven. In fact, it matters so much that, that, that Jesus mentions hell. Did you catch that? So you're telling me I'm going to hell because I blow my top, Tim? Well, I'm not saying that, but Jesus did. Seriously? I'm, I'm going to go to hell because I lose my temper? Listen, we, we need to understand something here. Anger is one of the myriad of sins where we all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 says it's pass-fail and we all fail. We've all fallen short and, and anger is just one of the ways that I have violated God's standard. And Jesus says the stuff that comes out of us in anger separates us from God just as much as murder separates us from God. To which, to which skeptics, uh, cynics might say, Tim, uh, seems like God's a little inconsistent on this. I mean, I'm not supposed to be angry, but you go to the Old Testament and God's angry with Moses. God's angry with the nation of Israel. God's angry with, with, with Israel's enemies. Jesus was angry in Mark chapter 3. What's up with that? Well, first of all, God isn't inconsistent. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells us, that, tells us that there's a kind of anger that you can have and not sin. There's, it's a righteous kind of anger um, where we see evil, we see injustice, and it just it kind of stirs something in us. There's, there's actually a godly kind of anger that's part of the image of God in us, which leads to the second point we just need to admit, that, that God's anger is justified Ours is incomplete because when God sees the, the brokenness and injustice in our world, he sees it all. He sees it from every vantage point. He knows everything about it, and, and you and I don't. And so when God says, that's not right, I'm, I'm not going to allow that to stand. I'm going to do something about that. He's justified in his actions, and I actually appreciate that about God. I, I, I can worship a God who says that's wrong and it has to be dealt with. But see, you and I, we don't have that vantage point. We don't have the perspective he has. And so our anger at best is incomplete. Even our, our righteous anger, the good kind of anger, it's better than unrighteous anger, but it, it's still incomplete compared to God's anger. But, but let me just say this. Let's just admit this. The righteous kind of anger that Paul says isn't a sin, that's not the kind of anger I see most of the time. That's not the kind of anger that I see coming out of me. That's not the kind of anger that I see um, in, in others. The kind of anger I see most of the time is self-centered. It's about me. It's about my life. It's about my perspective. It's about my agenda. It's, it's centered around me 
me, 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 me. And Jesus says, that is destructive. That is divisive. And I doubt there's a person watching this that hasn't been hurt by that kind of anger. I, I'd bet there isn't a person watching this that at some point hasn't been shocked by their own anger. So um, Gallup did a poll a few years ago, and they, they found that 20% of, the, of Americans that they polled experienced significant amounts of anger, like all the time. One in five Americans are angry a lot. So depending on how many people you have in the, the room where you're watching this, you decide <laughs> which one of the five that is, right? Um, Harvard Medical School did a study with teenagers. They found that two-thirds of teenagers experienced such high levels of anger that it led to physical acts of violence. They broke something. They destroyed something. Two-thirds of teenagers find themselves in violent moments of anger. AAA did uh, surveyed American drivers. Now we're getting somewhere. AAA surveyed American drivers. They found that 80% of American drivers experienced such significant levels of anger that it led to what's been defined as road rage. 80%. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking it's not rage if they deserved it, Tim. Right? And, 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 and I, I get it. Yes, it is. Yes, it, it's still anger. And I say all of that to say this. We live in an angry world where it doesn't take much. As time goes on, it seems like it takes less and less to set people off. James, the brother of Jesus, said to be slow to anger, but we're not. We're quick to anger. And, and Jesus' followers... They're called to turn the volume down. They're called to live upside down when it comes to things like this. So, little self-reflection time, okay? How irritable are you? How irritable are you? Seriously, when, when somebody bumps you, uh, spills a little bit of your coffee, is it Thundercats or Go? Right? Is uh, um, when somebody honks because you hesitated a nanosecond after the light turned green, or maybe um, they're, they're in front of you and they missed the arrow and now you have to wait another cycle to turn. You're talking to customer service and they don't care about your problem at all. Your teenager or your preteen says something sarcastic and, and dismissive. Some old fogey takes a swipe at your generation. Okay, boomer. For those of you who are married, your spouse proves that on this day that they are less than perfect. How irritable are you? I'm actually going to put you on the hook here and ask you to rate yourself, all right? A one means you are so saintly, we're going to name a school after you. A 10 means we need to quarantine you on an island with a volleyball as your best friend, okay? Don't land on five. Make a commitment. Talk to the people in the room with you. Ask if your self-assessment is accurate. If you're watching this by yourself, you get to go with whatever you and your cat decide. Talk about it for a minute, and we'll come back.
meant for you, but uh, come back, come back to me. Um, some of you just proved you're more like a nine than the three you rated yourself at, but won't get into that. Um, I, I, I don't remember which one it was, if it was Toy Story 1 or 2, but um, you remember when Mr. Potato Head is, is getting ready to go on this adventure? And Mrs. Potato Head is, is packing his stuff, and she says, I'm packing your angry eyes just in case. Remember that? Remember that line? There, there, there are people walking around this planet with their angry eyes at the ready, just in case. They are walking, talking, fuming bags of irritation, and they don't even know it. The people around them know it, but they don't know it. Some of you, some of you do know you're like that. And, and you say things like, well, I'm just blowing off steam. If I hold it all in, I'll have a heart attack. You don't want me to have a heart attack, do you? Right? The conventional wisdom used to be, it's better just to get it all out. You need to shout, shout, get it all out. These are the things I can do without. Come on, I'm talking to you. Come on. Some of you know that song, Tears for Fears, 1985. Those guys actually wrote that song because they were involved in what was called primal scream therapy. At the time, um, the, the, the conventional wisdom would, would say that if you have a problem, if you have a hurt, if you have an anger, you just need to shout it out, scream it out, and then you can move on. If you talk to, to, to researchers today, that doesn't lead to less anger it actually leads to more aggressive forms of anger. And so if you've convinced yourself, if you've convinced the people around you that you just need to get it all out and, and you'll be fine, let me just ask a real clarifying question for you. How's that working for you? How's that working for the people around you? Now, am I saying that we just need to keep it all in and, and never let anything out? No, not at all. I do think we need to, to talk about our hurts. I do think we need to talk about what we're angry about with each other, with God. Uh, for those who really struggle with this, we need to sit down with a Christian counselor. But if you think it's healthy to do some wide-angle vomit of all of your anger and everything will be better, you're missing the point. You're, you're missing something here. There's a, um, a social psychologist, not a Christ follower, but I can't help but quote her here. She says, it's always good to express your anger so it won't clog your arteries or your relationships. But if your expressed rage causes another person to shoot you, it doesn't matter. You die with very healthy arteries. Okay? Bottom line. Bottom line. This kind of anger doesn't do you any good. Doesn't do the world any good. Doesn't do the problem any good. When, when you're that angry, your body actually works against you. Your arteries restrict. The O2 levels in your blood drop. There, there, there's some research that, that suggests that we lose a few IQ points every time we're that angry. And I say this as respectfully as I can. Some of us can't afford that. A little later in the movie, Mr. Potato Head thinks it's go time, and he reaches for his angry eyes, and instead, he gets another pair of shoes and puts them in. He runs into the wall and just falls apart. Isn't that how it normally works for you? 
when you're that angry, you, 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 you blow your top and we, we just make a mess of things. We just make a mess. So what are you supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? How, how do you turn the volume down? Well, speaking of angry eyes, um, there's a, a neuroscientist, Alex Korb from UCLA, who's written and researched um, this subject. And um, one of the things he talks about is the connection between our angry feelings and a particular muscle in our face. And the muscle in our face is the, the muscle right here that causes um, your forehead to look like corrugated tin, and it's actually called the corrugator supercilii. Look it up. It's actually called that. And, he, and when your corrugator supercilii is engaged, it tells your brain, uh-oh, uh-oh, something bad's about to happen. And so he, he did experiments where he taped golf tees to people's eyebrows and told them to see if they could get the, the golf tees to touch. I'm not making this up. It's a real experiment. If they couldn't do it with the muscles in their face, then they were supposed to take their fingers and push their eyebrows together. And in every one of the experiments, when the muscle is engaged, when the corrugator supercilia is engaged, people had higher levels of anger and frustration and disgust even if they weren't angry about something. So, real practical tip, can't find it in the Bible, but if you want to turn the volume down, tell your face to lighten up. Disengage your corrugator super silly eye. Here, here's another one. Um, some of you might not want to hear, um, but some of you need to uh, restrict, discipline, limit, uh, fast from, avoid, figure out your level of engagement on social media. And I know, I know, but Tim, the world needs my opinion on these things. I know, I know, but, but listen, I know you think that. But again, the research shows, number one, you are not making anything better. Number two, you are not going to feel better. And number three, you are more than likely going to feel worse. It's, it's, it's just another form of venting. And because we're partially anonymous, I mean, even if they know your name, they can't see your face. There is no face-to-face -face contact. You're just typing it up and sending it out there into the interwebs. But because we are partially anonymous, we forget the fellow image bearer on the other side of our words. We forget that they are created in the image of God just like you are. We forget that they're loved by God. And the stuff some of us post, Jesus says... You are dangerously close to murder. But, 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 but Tim, I, I got to get out there and I got to swing at them because they're swinging at me. I, I, I got to say something about their point of view because they're saying something about my point of view. I got to tell them they're irresponsible for not wearing a mask in public. Or I've got to tell them they're living in fear because they're wearing a mask in public. Right? It does no good. It does nothing but turn the volume up. And those of us who follow Jesus, 
He calls us to a radically different, upside-down way of living, even when it comes to anger. See, I've thought this for, for years. If I was an enemy of the human race, I would create multiple platforms that could reach the entire world that allowed anybody and everybody to distribute truth and then watch as the whole thing burned to the ground. Jesus calls us to something better. Jesus calls us to something more. Now, now for some, you, your anger doesn't, it's not that obvious, it's more subtle. It's what experts call a low burn. You just simmer. You criticize, you critique, you critique your, your anger doesn't burn hot, it burns cold. Henry Nowen puts it like this, this is not an open, blatant, roaring anger, but an anger hidden behind the smooth word, the smiling face, and the polite handshake. It is a frozen anger. That quote actually came from an article about pastors who deal with anger. So, how do we turn the volume down? I, I, I think there's something to paying attention to what our faces communicate. I, I think there's something to getting away from social media, but it's got to be more than that. At some point, our spiritual disciplines have to come in. And, and Jesus says all throughout the Sermon on the Mount that we have to start in the inside places. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I love learning about how our body is connected to our brains and our souls. So I wonder if it starts with confession, right? I wonder if it starts with, God, I'm angry and I need your help. God, I'm angry and, and I need help with my attitude, with my words, with how I think about them, with how I think about that group of people, with what I'm tempted to post on social media. I don't want to turn the volume up. I want to turn the volume down. Maybe it starts with confession. But at some point, we also have to take action. And the rest of Jesus' answer is the rest of what we have to do. He gives two examples, and, and some of these, I think Jesus is, is using humor here. But he gives us two examples. He says, um, if you're going to court and you bump into the person you're up against, he says, settle out of court. Settle before you even get there. Because you don't want to put this in the hands of a judge because you have no idea how that's going to end up. But basically, make peace before somebody makes you make peace. Make peace before somebody forces you to do that. And then another one, Jesus, um, Jesus puts this at such a high priority. He says this is such a high priority that it supersedes, at times, our worship of him. He says if you're offering a sacrifice in the temple and you remember somebody who has something against you, not the other way around. But if somebody has something against you, leave your sacrifice there. Drop everything and go see if you can make peace with them. Uh, some scholars um, say that this is the peace offering, a specific offering uh, you give at the temple in Jerusalem. A portion of the meat is left there for the priest and his family, but this is one of the offerings that you get to take a portion of that, 
that sacrifice and you get to partake in it. You've offered it to God. You, you have peace with him. You enjoy his grace. And then you get to take that meat and have a celebratory meal. Some scholars say that, that, that um, our act of communion is an echo of the peace offering because we gather at the altar, at the table. We thank God for the peace he's made available through Jesus and we enjoy his grace and we celebrate with a meal. But don't miss this. Jesus is, is teaching this in, in northern Israel, up by the Sea of Galilee. And he says, even if you've made the effort to travel all the way down to Jerusalem, you've, you've bought the animal, you've planned out the meal, you've made arrangements for the guest, you're ready to make the sacrifice, even if you've gone to all that effort, if there's someone with whom you do not have peace, leave it there and go make peace with them first. That is how big of a deal this is to Jesus. And that's how we'll end today. I want to invite those of you who know Jesus, who've um, rejected the notion that this is about fooling him with rituals and external behavior. And in your inner self, you've turned to him and you've said, Jesus, I trust you. Be my forgiver. Be my savior. Be my king. For those of you who are ready to celebrate communion wherever you are, we're going to do that here in a minute. But, but today, um, there's one caveat that I need to add of all days. Some of us need to do some business with God. I get that. But some of us might need to do some business with somebody else. You, you may need to leave the room and pray. You may need to seek peace with the person sitting right next to you. And, and for some of you, I don't know, but for some of you, you, you maybe shouldn't take communion today until you've made peace with someone in your life. And I'm suggesting that you leave your sacrifice at the altar and attempt, as the Apostle Paul said, as much as it depends on you to make peace with them. Because come on, come on. There are boulders sitting at the top of a relationship, of a marriage, a friendship, a community, just waiting to get on a roll and destroy everything in its way. Our anger, what we say, what we think, what we post, whether it's frozen or red hot, it's dangerous. And Jesus says, deal with it. Take care of it. Get rid of it, even if it means you need to pause your worship of me. So I'm going to invite you to pray. I'm going to invite you to consider the condition of your heart. And I'm going to invite you to the table, wherever you find yourself right now. I'm going to pray, and then we'll have some scripture, and we'll have some communion prompts um, on the screen to walk us through this time. So let me pray for you. Father in heaven, we come before you in this moment of worship, 
in this moment in time, this moment in history, where the waters we're navigating are difficult for so many. And it's elevated feelings of anger and distress, and, and we need your help. We want to live how you've called us to live. And so we've opened your word. We've, we've listened to your son's voice speak directly to us. And I'm asking that you would help us to take these things and put them into real-time, real-life practice starting today, starting right now, right here. God, for those who are on the outskirts of faith, um, I pray that they would take just one more step towards you. I pray that you'd find them, that you would remind them that they're not crazy for taking that step. God, I can't convince them. And so I'm asking you to draw them in closer as they continue to hear about this king who came to establish an upside-down kingdom, this king that, that rules and reigns over this kingdom. God, would you meet with each and every individual, each and every family, each and every couple, all of these settings in these next few moments as we celebrate the peace that we have with you. And I ask it all for your glory's sake. And I ask it all in Jesus' name.